We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Let's continue our studies in the book of Colossians. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23 this morning, but I'll begin reading at verse 15 to set the context. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for that reconciliation that comes in the work of Christ. And we're thankful that Christ remains uh, the one uh, who is our sure foundation. And so we pray today, O oh God, again, we ask that Christ, that you would be magnified this day, that we would set our eyes upon you, that we would see who you are and what you have done, and we confess, confess it to be true. There are things about who you are and things about what you've done that we truly do not comprehend, O oh God. How is it there is one Son who is fully God and fully man? And why in the world would you die for such unrighteous wretches like us? It magnifies your love. It magnifies your infinite love towards us, O oh God. And truly, we do not know how much we owe. And so may we praise you and honor you still as we read your word, as we ponder and consider what we once were and what we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he continue to be that anchor in shifting times. And we pray, O oh God, if there are any here today who do not know you, may you prick upon their heart that at this time they are an enemy of you. And may they find mercy and forgiveness in Christ that they who once would be enemies or were enemies may now be friends. May they do so by faith. May they do so by your power. For you are a God who forgives and forgives all sorts of wretched sins that we commit. And thank you that you are such a God who does such things. So we ask, O oh God, today, again, your spirit would be amongst us. Give us illumination from on high by your spirit to understand what is going on in your word. And thank you that you do. Thank you for your promises. And we pray that your saints would be strengthened and grounded this day. We pray that sinners would be uh, saved this day. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I know the past couple of weeks I've used a lot of high theological language when it comes to who our Lord Jesus Christ is in his person and in his work. And it might be unfamiliar to us, but there was a time when it was just part and parcel of the Christian walk, part and parcel of the Christian religion. And so I want us to be revived in these things. I want us to understand these things and learn these things once again uh, to help us, that we might be more familiar with the language, that we might know who our Lord and Savior Jesus is. 
And some people might be wondering, why do you have to use all that language? What in the world does it mean for me? Well, Paul uses this high language in verses 15 through 20, but then he drives it home in verse 21. What does this mean for me? What does it mean that the one who is the creator, the one who died and rose again, what does that mean for a wretch, uh, a person like me or a wretched person like me? And so I've tried to highlight those things the last couple of weeks, but Paul really does drive it home here in verses 21 through 23. He gives us more detail, and the whole book really uh, highlights why it's important that we know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And one of the key reasons is we need a firm foundation. We need to know where our salvation lies, and we need to know who we need to cling to day by day, because there are threats in this world. There are heretics in this world who want to take us away from the Lord Jesus Christ, take away from his finished and completed work. That's what Paul is writing to deal with here in the book of Colossians. Remember, Paul is in prison. There's four prison epistles. Uh, This is one of them. He's writing to the church at Colossae to encourage them. He's heard about their faith. He's heard about their hope. He's heard about their love, and he writes to encourage them. He's also heard there are men who live near there who are trying to take the Colossians' eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why he writes and says, don't do that. Always look to the Savior. Always look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rely upon him where your salvation lies and the one who keeps you in this world. And he does so by reminding them of what they once were. Prior to being saved, prior to being found in Christ, it's important for us all to remember what we once were. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what you are now. And the problem that we see here, the problem uh, that Christians once were, and the problem that unbelievers are dealing with now, is the problem of being alienated from God, the problem of being an enemy of God. Those in Christ, we must consider what we once were, and also who continues to ground us. We must not be forgetful of who keeps us steadfast, who is our anchor in a shifting world. It's so easy to be forgetful of what Christ has done. The gospel isn't just for new converts. It's for all of us day by day to be reminded of who he is. So we once were alienated. That was a problem because of our sin. And those not in Christ, you're an enemy now in your nature. Sinful mind, sinful works. Rebelling against God, one who is not in line with the things of God. And so Paul in verses 21 through 23 is reminding the Colossian Christians, the church, about what Christ, who is Lord of creation, does for them, what he did for them, and what he continues to do for them even now. And what he does is he reconciles and he establishes. And these are the two points that we'll see this morning. We'll see reconciled enemies, verses 21 and 22. Then secondly, we'll see grounded saints or established saints in verse 23. So reconciled enemies, verses 21 and 22, and then grounded or established saints in verse 23. So let's first look at reconciled enemies in verse 21 and 22. And notice verse 21, once enemies. Now, this is in the context of the one who is creator. We see in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, highlighting the one who is the creator, the one who has authority. That's what firstborn means there. 
but also the one who is firstborn over new creation. Now, he has authority over new creation. He has authority over salvation. But certainly Jesus, in a lot of ways, was the firstborn uh, chronologically from the dead, as the first man to be raised from the dead. And we know that he is also God, uh, fully God and fully man. And then we see in verses, or saw in verses 19 and 20, we see how God is reconciling all things to himself, this cosmic salvation, and then he brings it home. What does that mean for me? And in verses 15 through 20, it was all third persons. He, in him, what he does. Then in verses 21 through 23, you, and you, and you, and you once were something, and you are now something in him. So as he drives this application home, we must examine ourselves and be reminded and consider what Christ did for us. And we always talk about general sins based on the Ten Commandments, but there are many ways in which we had all violated those things personally, ways in which we transgressed God's law. And yet God was pleased to forgive us in the work of the Son. And if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, you transgress God's law, all of it. But there is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 21, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. There was this great separation. There was this removal from the favorable presence of God. Adam, the first man, had a favorable presence with God. God still remains omnipresent. But if one is not in Christ, one has an unfavorable presence of God. And in fact, in Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were once children of wrath. That is the object of God's wrath. Uh, uh, the object of uh, God says he is angry with the wicked every day. Now, this hate the sin, uh, not the sinner type of nonsense. God says, I'm angry with the wicked every day. Because we're sinful in our minds, we're sinful in our works, or we're sinful in our works, we had a wicked disposition. And so alienation here refers to our being separated from God. It's used in Ephesians 2 to talk about the separation between Jew and Gentile. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is he unites Jew and Gentile together, unites people from differing backgrounds in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here the emphasis is between us and God. And notice the language, who once were alienated, were alienated, were alienated. Who's the one doing the alienating here? God. God was the one who, who is the one who is perfect in every way. God is the one who is holy. God is the one who is perfectly righteous. So who is it that separate himself from us? It is God. God must righteously punish sin. God must separate himself from sin in a, uh, uh, and have an unfavorable presence towards it. And we who once were in Adam were in this miserable condition, separated from God. And if you are not in Christ and you are still in Adam, you have this miserable condition now as well, separated from God. You who were once were alienated. Then he also says in verse 21, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. He's using built-in illustrations here. I like to say often I'm really bad at illustrations, so I love it when there's built-in illustrations for me. 
Friends and enemies. Typically enemies don't get along, right? Typically enemies do not have the same mind. Friends typically do. Enemies typically don't like each other and they don't like the same things. So what he's saying to these Gentiles, what he's saying to these pagans at Colossae here, is at one time in your former ways, you did not do the things that were pleasing to God. In doing so, you were enemies. Life was about you. Life was about your sin. Life was about uh, uh, doing what was pleasing to you rather than pleasing to God. Now, God's people and remaining corruption still struggle with that, but we know where our foundation lies day by day. But once it was what dominated our lives. And he says, enemies in your mind by wicked works. And the language of mind there carries the idea of mindset. And not just in the minds, but the totality of one's being. That is, in nature, in man's nature, in his fallen nature, he is totally depraved from his head to his toes, from his hips to his fingertips. No one not in Christ is totally sinful. Does that mean they're the worst person ever? No, but it means in their totality of being, they have sinned against God most high. And their mind was on wicked things and their works manifested these wicked things. We once had an ignorant mind, a poisoned will, and a uncontroll un and uncontrollable emotions. A ignorant mind, poisoned will, and uncontrollable emotions. The, our minds were only focused on doing things for ourselves. Now, thankfully, we are, we are those who are redeemed in Christ have a changed mind, right? Changed heart. And repentance really does mean change of mind, turning from our sin to the true and living God. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin when it comes to conversion. We turn from sin to the true and living God. And if we are in Christ, you know what we're supposed to do? Set our mind on the things that are above. This is what Paul is going to say in Colossians 3. Now, it's not the same word, but it's the same concept. If we are now uh, friends, if we are no longer enemies, shouldn't we think about our king? If we, are of the, if we are the body of the head, should we not love to do the things that the head wants? Should we not love the things that the head wants? Should we not as friends, ones who were once enemies and now friends, should we not seek to honor the king who saved us and loved us and made us friends and seek to do what is pleasing in his sight we ought to set our mind on those things and hopefully and rightly in you know, our christian walk again we still struggle with sin but right doctrine right thinking right mind change in christ ought to lead to right living again remaining corruption paul says the spirit wrestles against the flesh christians still struggle with sin but we are redeemed in christ and we seek to honor god day by day Day in his strength. And in fact, he says in verse 11, strengthened with all might as it as one of the ways in which we walk in a way pleasing unto the Lord. We are strengthened in Christ. But in our former ways, in our minds, and in our wicked works, this was man our, our minds, our wicked minds were manifested in what we did, in our words, in our conduct in our thoughts, violating, in God, violating God's law and engaging in things that did not please him.
This is what an enemy does. Alien enemy in your mind by wicked works. But now, I love the but nows in the Bible, or the yet nows in the Bible. There's a but now in verse 22, or sorry, at the end of verse 21. But now he has reconciled. But now he has reconciled. It's important to never forget our wickedness, brethren, to never forget our waywardness. And I think in our remaining corruption, we're probably reminded of that a little too often or a little more than we would like. But the reason we ought to be thankful to our God is because he reconciled us. Now, today is, or what, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving weekend, whatever. I don't typically do Thanksgiving sermons that way. We just press on in God's word. But we ought to be thankful every day, right? We have to be thankful every day for what Christ has done. We have to be thankful every day for what, the, what God gives us in this world, but especially for what Christ has done. And that's what he says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. How are we qualified? We were once under the power of darkness, but he's conveyed us into the son of his love. How are we qualified? Is there anything good within you or me that would qualify us? But now he has reconciled. But now he has made an enemy a friend. But now he has said and welcomed those who once rebelled against him, the one to whom he alienated himself. He is the one who welcomes them in, and we have a favorable presence with him because of Christ. But I don't always feel the favorable presence, I'll be honest with you. I don't always feel it all the time, and I don't know that I've felt it ever. But God's word is very clear. I have that favorable presence because of Christ. I have, he dwells with me. I have the Holy Spirit. And that does not change whether I'm having a bad day or not. It is, remains to be true and remains to be sure that Christ is with us. And we've seen his dwelling he tabernacles among us in verse 19 in his incarnation, and he still dwells amongst us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit indwells us as a down payment and a gift of the inheritance. Those things do not change, because those who were once enemies are now friends, and we're not just friends. We've been giving something that is greater than anything we could ever imagine in him. So yet now he has reconciled. This is also in Romans 5. Romans 5 speaks about reconciliation. And there's some words we probably should know off by heart. But when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then verse 10. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have, are now have a favorable relationship with God, and we have saved life in him because of his reconciliation. And notice the means by which he brings this reconciliation, verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death. The dwelling language is very temple-like, which we tried to highlight in verse 19. Again, John 1.18, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst his people. But what does he do when he tabernacles? 
he dies. What does he do when he comes down? He lives the law perfectly because we cannot. And he goes to the cross and dies that in that painful, shameful death in which he endured. The firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, well, clearly highlights one must die first before they're resurrected. And so how is it that we're reconciled? It is through his dying for his people. And it says, in the body of his flesh. And the reason he highlights the fleshness aspect there, sometimes flesh in the Bible can be righteous versus flesh, bad versus good. But here it's referring to one who actually lived, one who really was a man. When Jesus came into this world, it wasn't a phantasm. It wasn't just a hologram. It wasn't just some heavenly flesh they brought from heaven with him. He had all our essential properties and common infirmities. He was fully God and fully man. And as he was fully man, he had body and soul, right? And the one thing that differs between us and him, he was without sin. Yet he hungered, he thirsted, he went through pain. He went through all those things in the flesh. And the reason that's important is because these heretics in Colossae were saying that might not be the case. He probably just appeared. That phantasm aspect probably, uh, the reason I mentioned that is because it probably uh, was one of the views of a corruption of Christianity that came later, but had its precursors uh, at the time of Paul's writing. Jesus really came in the flesh. Jesus really suffered. Jesus, you know, if he was here, we'd look like a man like you and I, like us in every way, yet without sin. And so it was through the body of the one who came and the one who really dies for his people that we have reconciliation. And remember, it is we who sinned against God. And so God requires a perfect sacrifice so the only way, that, the only way we, uh, there can be salvation if, is if there's one who is perfect in man. And the one who is perfect in man is the God-man. We need him to be the mediator for his people, which he does. He came in his body of his flesh, and he died. And notice the purpose in verse 22. To present you, all the yous, right? You were alienated, you reconciled, you blameless, to present you holy in the sight of God. And what's interesting is perhaps a lot of the language here, holy and blameless, especially the word for blameless, uh, is used in Leviticus to describe sacrifices offered up. Holy and blameless, holy and unblemished. Brethren, we once who were blemished are now unblemished in him. We once who were alienated and in our sin are now perfect in him and in his work. So there perhaps is that temple connection. Christ, who is that perfect sacrifice, is the one who, after sacrificing himself, presents us holy and blameless in his body. Because he is the perfect lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one to whom the bulls and goats were pointing towards. They were looking towards him who would come, according to Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And so he's going to present us holy in his sight, blameless in his sight, unblemished, and above reproach. Above reproach probably is a legal term that one cannot bring an accusation against you. One day we're going to have to stand upon that judgment seat, right? 
No one can bring an accusation against us because of Christ and his finished work. Now, Satan tries to do this right. There's a very wonderful illustration in Zechariah chapter 3 of what we call imputation. Imputation just means transfer. Adam's sin was transferred to us, the guilt of it. Our sin is transferred to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. But we see this exchange in Zechariah 3. Zechariah is, one, is the second last prophet. We see in Zechariah 3, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. The Lord said to Satan, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. But why is Satan there? To, excuse me, to accuse. You can't hold up. You can't stand up. Did God really say? And sometimes we think that way, and we ought not to, dear brethren. We ought not to, we ought not to uh, 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 let those thoughts enter into our minds because our sure foundation is Jesus Christ. And Satan does this through heretics. No, 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 no. You don't need Christ. You need the angels. That, that's how you're saved. That's your foundation. You don't, you don't need Christ. You need to not eat these things. Then you'll be saved. That, that's what, those things come up. And so we must, again, be reminded again and again and again of Jesus Christ and his finished work, what he shall do for us. He is going to present us holy. He will present us blameless, and he will present us above reproach in his sight. So when we go to the judgment seat, dear brethren, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear about, some people worry about, is God going to play a big movie of my life and all the bad things I've done? no. You're forgiven in him. Why do you stand? Uh, what's your grounds when you stand before God, the judgment seat of God to get into heaven? Christ and his finished work. Not because I did, not because of these miracles I did, not because of this, Christ and Christ alone. And I try to highlight so often Matthew 7, that's what it's talking about. Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do? What's their foundation? Did we not do all these sorts of things? When we stand there, brethren, it is Christ. He presents us holy. He presents us blameless. He presents us above reproach. This language is found in Romans. This language is found in Titus. This language is, is found in Ephesians. As he talks about Christ dies for the church, you know, in that section on marriage, the husband's supposed to die for his wife because Christ died for the church. And what's Christ going to do? Present her holy and blameless. To present her in that white garment, squeaky clean because of what Christ has done. The whitest garment there ever was because of Christ and what he has done. And when this happens, we'll be at that final judgment when he comes again. This remains true now, but we shall see it and we shall hear it and believe and see it. We believe it now, but we shall see it on that day. So we who were once were enemies are now reconciled. Brethren, that's the application, isn't it? You who once were enemies are now reconciled. 
I think sometimes in reform circles, we can react to evangelicalism. Evangelicalism's gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? God's love is the motivation for his gospel. The gospel is Christ lived, died, and rose again. I think sometimes we're so afraid as reformed to say that God loves you because, you know, of evangelicalism. But don't miss what the gospel means for you if you believed on Christ. Christ loves you. Don't forget that, brethren. If you believed on Christ and lay hold of him, Christ does love you. You were alienated. You were now you're reconciled and you will be presented blameless. He does care for you and God will uphold you until the end in him. We must never forget that dear brethren, never, ever forget that, that God does love. And even when we consider, boy, the state in which we were in, I don't think we really understood the state in which we were in, but I love golden mouth Chrysostom. He says, here he goes to show that he reconciled those even who were unworthy of reconciliation. For by the saying that they were under the power of darkness, he shows the calamity in which they were. Under darkness, but now conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. May you know that forgiveness, may you know that mercy, dear brethren, may you be reminded of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today and you haven't believed and laid hold of Christ for salvation, there is mercy and forgiveness in him. But right now, you are an enemy and you are under the power of darkness. Your sins damn you to hell, but there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. In fact, the beautiful thing about the gospel is Christ forgives all sorts of sins that you would not forgive. Christ saves terrorists. Christ saves cannibals. In fact, I love the language of 1 Corinthians 6. He lists a whole bunch of vices about who will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, all sorts will inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Christ forgives big sins, and Christ forgives little sins. And even one little sin is enough to damn a person to hell forever. But there's forgiveness in Christ. Believe on him, and you shall be saved. Now, brethren, if we are friends and are redeemed, we ought to love the things that our Savior loves and be reminded of who grounds us and love the things by which he grounds us. And so that's our second point, grounded saints, verse 23. Once recon we are reconciled enemies, but we are also grounded saints, verse 23. Notice he says, verse 23, if indeed you continue steadfast in the faith, or continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Why does he say if here? We're not adding works as a contribution to our salvation. We're not suggesting works does any sort of thing like that. But if we're redeemed, we ought to pursue good works. I think Davenant's very good here. He says, we do not exclude the pursuit of good works, 
but the merit thereof. Our good works do not merit any standing before God. Neither do we deny that those who are reconciled should do good works. We should, but we maintain that these works are not such as can present us holy before God. Jesus presents us holy before God. But if we're friends, we ought to love the things that Christ loves. And the beautiful thing is, is if we are in Christ, he will preserve us until the end. So why does he say if here? The if here is probably for two reasons. One, sometimes true believers get sleepy. Let's just be honest. We get wayward. We backslide. I mean, Martin Booser's got four categories of sheep. He's got strong sheep, weak sheep, herding sheep. He's got wayward sheep and fifth, lost sheep. But notice three of them are usually people who are weak or, you know, hurting or wayward. You know, most of the time, strong is not usually what describes us. We wish it would, but it's not always the case. And so sometimes we need a little bit of a, just a bit of a thing to cause us to stop and think. I'm all for just a little, just a little jab and a little kick to remind us and stop and think if, if, so that's probably one reason. And especially in light of the threat of the heretics that are there but also to challenge what we call temporary believers. Temporary believers might be those who look like Christians, but they've never laid hold of Christ for salvation. What they're laying hold of is, wow, I I do go to church every week. Now, you should still go to church, by the way. Church, you know, we don't go to church to be saved. We go to church because we have been saved. But sometimes we can go, wow, I go to church, I'm saved, right? My mom was a Christian. I'm fine. I was baptized as a baby. Again, you you should be baptized not as a baby, but you should be baptized, but not as a baby. But that's not the means, our grounds, and what keeps us firm. But we can think this way. Or we can think, oh, it's my righteousness. I do all these wonderful things at church. I'm giving, doing this, that, or the other. I mean, we like our works, brethren. We like to contribute some way. We just love it. And so even true believers struggle with that. That's why I need to be reminded. But A temporary believer is one who is not rooted in Christ and has believed upon him. I mean, Jesus talks this way, doesn't he? I know everyone thinks Jesus sings kumbaya sometimes. You don't actually read Jesus' words, think everybody's going to, everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to, he talks about the wheat and the tares and how they grow together. He talks about the seeds scattered in four places and only one, there is actually root. And what that probably highlights is the gospel being proclaimed and it one might, you know, one, uh, uh, and then the various responses to that humanly speaking. And so that's what the ifs are for in God's word. And so notice, if you indeed continue in the faith, the meaning of faith here probably is twofold. One, it refers to the common consent of all Christians, but also the life we live as a life of faith. So not works. Our foundation is a life of faith in Christ. And again, he's commended the church at Colossae in chapter 1-4. Since we heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what grounds us is not our works. What grounds us is not our mystical experiences. What grounds us is not the worship of angels. But what grounds us is the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth. And the things that he has revealed in his word concerning himself, who he is and what he has done for us. And so we are grounded in, uh, we are indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. And this language is very structural, very temple-like. That is, how is it that we stand 
firm. A true Christian will remain grounded, not saying there aren't struggles, not saying there aren't hardships, but a true Christian will remain grounded in the difficulties of life. Persecute. Now, that's a sure sign of salvation because God, there are some things that come upon us and we're like, boy, I, I don't know if I could stand in those moments. And God keeps us in those moment, moments. He gives us fresh supply of whatever we are going to endure. Does he not do that? Have you ever had a hardship you had to endure and he gave you fresh supply to endure that thing? Christ does that in hardships. Now, again, if you're an unbeliever, I surmise you have hardships too, don't you? I surmise life is probably hard. You know, we live in a miserable, vain world where we're doing Ecclesiastes in the evening and everything's vanity. Everything's hard. Everything's difficult. There's inconsistency, right? So I surmise it is hard. What is your anchor in shifting times? God's people have Christ who is our anchor in shifting times. And no good shall depart from the church. Even if the church seems like it's failing, there shall always be a true church. Even when the church is persecuted, there will always be a true church. Cyprian says, let no one account that the good can depart from the church. The wind does not disperse the wheat, nor the tempest overturn the tree fixed by strong roots. Empty chaff is driven about by the storm. Feebler trees are beaten down by the gust of a whirlwind. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Who keeps us steadfast? It is Christ, dear brethren. Remain in the faith concerning him, grounded and steadfast. And notice he says, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. That moved away is also structural type language. You're an immovable object right? <laughs> Nothing can get you. Just kidding. I mean, still bad things happen, but when those bad things happen, what keeps us firm? What keeps us strong? What keeps us in shifting times when there are trials, when there are persecutions, when there are heretics? I mean, the world is just a bad place. <laughs> There's a thousand ways to die, and we'll talk about thousands of ways to die tonight. Uh, so, so I always like to give spoiler alerts for this evening to entice some of you to come again, but doesn't always happen, but that's okay. Uh, but the, there's just difficulty. So what keeps us firm? Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And he talked about hope in chapter 1-6, which again, he commends, Paul commends them for, which has come to you as it has also, or sorry, verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard. You heard the gospel. You heard about everlasting life. Cling to that. And there is the hope that though we die, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, though we die, we have a body, a heavenly body. So though whatever, though troubles assail us, I forget all the rest, but the point is that we are firm in Christ, whatever comes our way. We are grounded in the hope of the gospel, and he's what grounds us in a sad sinful, sorrowful world. It is, isn't it? I mean, you read the news and you just want to be like, boy, depressing. And then we have our lives that are sometimes depressing. There is forgiveness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who abides in us. And as John says in 1 John, abide in him 
and he shall abide in you. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which you heard. Christ lived, died, and rose again. Don't go away from it. And then Paul kind of gives some affirmations at the end of verse 23. Two affirmations, I guess two kind of um, evidences. But one affirmation, he says, uh, it's universal proclamation, which was preached to every creature under heaven. The reason they need to remain with it is because it has gone to the ends of the earth. And there have been many pagans who are saved. Paul himself was once a murderer. And in fact, in Acts 9, it says, while Paul still breathes threats, Jesus appears to him. Isn't God good to forgive murderers? <laughs> and so it has gone to the ends of the earth and God has saved great sinners to every creature under heaven. The Lord of creation is the one who extends his gospel throughout his creation. God, who is the one who brings cosmic reconciliation, brings salvation to individual people. So it has gone to the ends of the earth. But then notice he gives his apostolic authority of which I, Paul, became a minister. Epaphras is your pastor and your church planter, but I, Paul, have, an, have authority as an apostle. It's kind of a muscle flex here in a good way. He is saying, God has given me a certain authority. These heretics have not. Why in the world would you listen to them? Why would you listen to what they have to say? It is mind-boggling, probably to Paul. I mean, he's very kind and more gracious than I am, but it's mind-boggling. Why would you go away? Why would you move away? I've been appointed by God, yet you go to these different folks with different strokes who are, you know, looking at different things. And brethren, unfortunately, it's similar in the church. God has given pastors authority, right? I mean, laying on of hands, we have qualifications for a reason that there might be men appointed by God. That's why YouTube is a, is a bane and a boon. You want to know why? Guys who've never been appointed. Some have a YouTube channel and think people want to listen to them. And unfortunately, people listen to them. Rather than guys who've been appointed. Now, if there's a guy who has a YouTube channel who's connected to a church, okay. But we must not forget where the pillar and ground of truth is. And what is... Uh, the institution that is to be the protector of the pillar and or the, the protector of the truth. Who is it? What is it? It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through the men he's appointed to do that very thing. And brethren, I know I got my problems and my sins, trust me, but God really has entrusted me with authority. Has he not, not to be a tyrant, not to lord it over, but there are some to be a minister of his word. And sometimes I have to exercise that authority right? Sometimes I have to do that. Now, I'm sure there'll be times where I don't do a good job with that. I must recognize, and we must recognize, and Paul in a lot of ways here is saying, I'm Paul, I'm the minister, listen to what I have to say. There might be times where, brethren, I know I got issues, but God's entrusted me with this. Just sit down and listen. That might be things I will have to do, I'm sure, in the future, because we can get wayward sometimes, myself included. That's why free grace helps, and there's kind of a there's a symbiotic relationship between the members and the pastor to help with that thing. And we have a good confession to keep us grounded in these ways. Uh, but Paul rightly flexes his apostolic authority here. Not these guys, not these weirdos, but what I have to say. 
Now, brethren, again, this is a good reminder for us about what grounds us and what is our firm foundation. Christ, again, is our anchor. Christ is the one we ought to be the wise man who builds his house upon the rock and not the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. What's the, why, what's the rock? Jesus Christ and the truth found in him. That means we should foster and deepen our faith and dependence upon him in any way possible, or mainly in the ways he said, gathering as the body, praying, reading God's word. We got to set our mind on those things first and foremost, day by day. Now, praying doesn't mean you have to pray a thousand hours a day, but we can still, you know, do popcorn prayers, they're called, right? You can just pray a two-second prayer sometimes. That's perfectly okay to do. Get up in the morning and pray too, and in the evening, but we can pray day by day. We have to do what we can to be reminded of Christ so we don't go wayward, dear brethren. We must never forget that He is, again, that anchor even down to old age. He is the one who preserves us and keeps us. I love how firm a foundation, hymn number 80. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. If Christ has redeemed us and begun a good work in us, Will he not preserve us until the day of redemption? Will he not keep us until that day, whatever calamity might come upon you? Brother, never forget who your firm foundation is. And because of what he has done, may we always render thanks to him. Davenant again says, since God alone hath power to rescue us from the state of condemnation, as many as perceive that they are delivered and received into divine favor, should give continual thanks and render unceasing obedience to their deliverer. Because God, through Christ, has made enemies friends. Let's pray. The Lord our God, we are thankful for the work of Father, Son, and Spirit, and especially for the mission of the Son. Thank you that the Son took on human flesh. Thank you that the Son lived, died, and rose again. And thank you that he is the one who sits at your right hand, O Father, and he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And thank you that we who once were alienated and enemies, you have made friends. And we don't deserve this, O God, yet it manifests your eternal, infinite, unchangeable love towards us. And we're thankful, O God, for the fact that we have a righteousness not our own. And we're thankful, O God, for the fact that you preserve us and keep us until the end. May you always be that firm foundation uh, on which we lean day by day. Please forgive us for our feeble prayers. Please forgive us for our um, uh, distracted readings. Please forgive us for being uh, sleepy sometimes in church, O oh God. May you be uh, gracious to us. May we hear your word. May we understand and believe what your word has said. May we always come back to our Savior Christ, who is the chief cornerstone Thank you, O God, that he builds his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And thank you, O God, you've appointed ministers in your churches to be uh, ones who are guardians of your word. And so we pray that faithfulness uh, would abound in our church. Truth would abound in our church. Please help us not to be so arrogant to think it cannot drift. 
And may we trust in your promises, trust in your word, believe what you have said to us in the scriptures. And we pray, O oh God, for any here today who do not know you, who are enemies uh, in your sight. We pray, O oh God, that you'd show them their sin, but show them the mercy that is found in Christ Jesus and that they might believe upon him. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Be with us now as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.